This is Market Currents from Northern Trust, where we explore facts, patterns, and expert opinions to answer today's most difficult market questions. The dramatic underperformance of value stocks relative to growth stocks over the last several years has certainly gotten its fair share of attention, particularly from investors who are students of market history and who looked at the overwhelming evidence that suggests that the value factor, that is buying stocks with low price-to-book value, represents a risk, but one that has a high degree of confidence that you'll get compensated for over time. How much time, though? That's the question, as the duration of the value factor underperformance has gone on for many, many years. And actually, the most acute underperformance has happened in the most recent years. All that said, though, we may be at a turning point. We've seen value actually starting to outperform growth since the last quarter of 2020. Certainly into this year, investors have started to believe in the cyclical economic growth story. There's another element at play here, too, as the relative valuation between growth and value has become excessive, mostly because growth stock valuations are so elevated. Some worry, though, that this phenomenon might be short-lived, and while value stocks might get a little pop here, longer-term investors will find their way back to growth stocks. So as we think about this debate right now, it takes on perhaps even more importance in the context of Northern Trust equity outlook. Our five-year capital market assumption outlook for broad market equity returns are well below average. And the driving force behind that lower-than-historical average forecast is really today's high valuations, which are influenced heavily by, you guessed it, large-cap growth stocks. So the question is, will investors be compensated for taking the risk of investing in value going forward? This is a perfect time to bring in our experts to talk about this important topic, so I'm very pleased to introduce our guest for the session. We have Michael Hunstead, who's a PhD and is the head of our quantitative strategies group at Northern Trust. And we have Chris Shipley. He's our head of fundamental equities here at Northern. So why don't we start here with the basics? Mike, I'm going to start with you. How do you define value when you look at the overall market? What kind of valuation metrics do you use and why? Yeah, fundamental question. You know, it it varies a bit depending on the market and the strategy, but uh, in general, what we're looking for is we're examining price relative to a variety of measures. So we like the idea of triangulation. We look at price relative to cash flows, to earnings, to sales, uh, and a sort of a contemporaneous view. But we also look historically to say, uh, relative to where your sales or earnings are at today, is that commensurate with your past experience? We want to make sure that there's no blip, you know, in terms of the accounting information. So we look historically, we also look at forward looking from an analyst expectation perspective, what are your earnings and cash flows going to look like? It's about taking in a variety of information. That's, I think, the best assessment of value gives you the true picture of value over the long term. So, Mike, I'm glad you mentioned this evolution of the way value is measured. And I think historically, when you look back at the history of the value factor, people sort of land on and they really stay on price to book. So I'm glad you referenced price to cash flow and price to sales, which seems to accommodate maybe some of the changes in the economy with dominance of services over manufacturing and accommodate some of the changes in the composition of the market over time with the rise in technology and tech adjacent sectors. So the very definition of value has evolved as well. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. And uh, this has certainly been on value investors' minds over the last decade. You know, in, in the past, we put a lot of, we as an industry, 
put a lot of emphasis on asset-based valuation measures like price-to-book ratios. But as the role of assets has been somewhat diminished in the overall profitability and cash flow generation of firms, those metrics have not necessarily fared well. Obviously, there's been a huge issue in the growth of intangibles on the balance sheets of firms, not necessarily accurately represented as an asset. There has been a migration, if you will, a lot of value investors now focusing on more cash flow earnings oriented metrics rather than the traditional asset based metrics, certainly. So, Mike, if you look at some of the value indices and some of the value portfolios, it's probably more likely now to see names that you might not have seen before in the value of the early 2000s. You might see some technology names. Is that fair? Yeah, uh, the composition definitely changes. Uh, By sector, we have a very different asset profile. So as you migrate from asset-based metrics into more cash flow-based metrics, the composition of your value portfolio certainly can change as well, definitely. So that makes a lot of sense, looking at value in whatever way you define value. If you think about how the definition has evolved, it sounds like from what you say, value investing has really modified to align with the changing nature of the economy and in the market. But yet it still hasn't, it hasn't really worked. So what's gone wrong? Well, I think what we have to recognize is the whole theory of value is predicated on a cycle, right? When you buy a stock, you get the cash flows of that stock. That's the, that's the whole idea. It's that simple, really. So the cash flows of that stock, you, you think about the current cash flows, you think about the growth rate of those cash flows in the future, and then you discount that back to today. So there's some discount rate. Well, the, the theory of value is two-sided in that on one side, the idea is that when you look historically, investors have tended to overpay for cash flow growth expectations. So they, they tend to over-extrapolate good news. They tend to be somewhat too optimistic about growth expectations and the risk assessment as well. They're overpaying on the upside, but also as a corollary, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they're actually underpaying for those firms that have uh, relatively lower growth expectations. So there tends to be this divergence that you see between the stocks with the optimism and the stocks with somewhat less optimism, we call it that. But that lends itself to a cycle in that it takes time for those securities to mean revert back to their fundamental. It's kind of the theory of value is sort of a, a divergence between animal spirits and rationality in some sense, but it takes time for the market to come back to that rational view. What has happened over the last decade is we've seen this massive dislocation between growth and value. We have seen, obviously, optimism on those stocks that have a lot of growth, high growth expectations, relative pessimism for those that do not. We have become disconnected from the fundamentals. Over the last decade, is it structurally something is different? I don't believe that's the case. I think it's a cycle. It's a pronounced cycle but it's not unlike what we have seen in the past as well. I think it's more of a situation of where are we at in the cycle uh, than is something fundamentally different this time. And the cycle itself has been you know, extended due to 
fiscal stimulus, lower interest rates, also a number of issues on the composition of investors in the, in the, in the, in the industry. But from our view, it's much more about the where we're at in the cycle than any kind of, of permanent dislocation. This time is not different. It's just the fact that we're in that depth of the cycle. Well, I think this is a very good time to bring in Chris Shipley to talk about the fundamentals. And Chris, you know, I often think about that Willie Sutton quote, you know, why why do people rob banks? Well, that's where the money is. And if you think about that in terms of tech stocks, why do investors invest in tech? Well, the, the easy answer is that's where the growth has been. So as we think about the performance of growth versus value, and Mike talked about investors getting overly exuberant about growth stocks, and we certainly do see valuations elevated today relative to history, outside of maybe the internet bubble of 1999 for some of these, these high-value tech stocks. So are investors irrationally exuberant right now about tech in the future? What's your perspective? I really think it's unquestionable that valuations for growth stocks look stretched, particularly versus value. But I also think it's difficult to generalize. If you look at where much of the market cap is, say the top five S&P names like Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, they really don't look as expensive either versus their own histories, at least for some, or versus their growth rates. Where the excesses are is really in what we would call the more speculative parts of tech, where the stocks reflect much more hope than reality. And that's not to say that some of these companies don't have the opportunity to make good on high expectations that the market has on them, but I think it's reasonable to say that many won't. And in the unwinds or the rotations that we've seen recently, it's that part of tech that has really taken it on the chin, and rightfully so. It's been some of the extreme valuation high flyers that you've seen underperforming as value has started to work. I think in the context of the broader equation of growth and value, I think that you can still have an environment where certain large cap, reasonably valued growth companies can still do okay in the context of a value, a value recovery. But I do think that you have to consider some of these more expensive parts of tech, the more speculative stuff that's trading at 20 times as being the real source of, of, of investor capital when you think about what's going to drive some outperformance of value. So I don't think you have to see Apple and Google necessarily not work in order for value to do well as those companies really aren't as excessively valued and still have very strong competitive advantages and growth prospects. You know, I think that there's there's probably room for both to do reasonably well in, in the context of the backdrop that we're expecting, but the more speculative parts of tech are certainly where you see some of these more extreme valuations and where you have a lot more vulnerability to the downside. So I'm really glad you mentioned that, Chris, because I think a lot of investors assume that for value to do well, we have to have a pretty big dislocation in growth investing. And I referenced earlier that the perception that a lot of growth stocks right now are selling near these sort of bubble-like levels, and perhaps perhaps not the, the FANG stocks, the Facebook, Amazon, Google stocks, but we certainly have been, been reading a lot about some stocks that don't even have earnings, but are valued at 40, 50 times revenue. Is your premise that we don't have to have that kind of a big popping of a valuation bubble in order for value to do well? So you were saying perhaps it's both and and not either or? Yeah, I mean, I think in the context of, of where there's real companies with real cash flow and earnings, I don't think those companies necessarily are excessively valued. Again, the, the top five names that I referenced. I think in, in those names, I think it's reasonable to think that under a backdrop of, of improving global growth and, and, and stable to modestly higher interest rates, et cetera, that those parts of, of the growth market can still do okay. 
I really think it's that more speculative part of tech where you have a lot more of the value of the companies built on a hope rather than a real runway toward profitability. I think that those are the parts of the market that we're certainly keeping an eye on as being the principal source of rotation to fund any meaningful shift of value. Okay, so let's shift gears a bit. And I'm going to throw this question to you, Mike. Now, one of the things we've heard actually frequently as the relative performance of value against growth has gotten wider and wider is that people have come and said, you know, it's just that value has gotten too popular along with other risk factors. Everyone sees the empirical evidence. Everyone sees value as a compensated risk factor. And the value premium is going to shrink over time just because too many people are jumping on the bandwagon. What do you make of that argument? Yeah, yeah, I hear this a lot, but all of the evidence is really in the opposite direction. And that if that were true, if that everyone was jumping on the value bandwagon, we would expect to see the relative price of value stocks appreciate. But in fact, they've gone in the opposite direction. When you look at, as was noted already, uh, the valuation of value stocks relative to their own history, we're at, you know, depending on how you measure, three or four standard deviations to the cheap side. If there's a lot of people out there buying value stocks, they're, they're not moving the market very much in terms of the price. I, I don't find that as a valid concern in that we would expect to see that in the, in the pricing action. Where we do see an overbought market certainly is on the growth side. A lot of activity there. In contrast to value, you see growth securities relative to their own history, again, at three or four standard deviation level. The spread between growth and value from a multiple perspective is really at or near all-time highs. So I hear a lot of that discussion that it's over value is overbought, but if that were true, we would expect to see that in the market, and we really just don't. I mean, it's been really interesting to see some of the very really the most well-known value investors get challenged, sort of publicly challenged and, you know, castigated actually for sticking to sticking to and staying with the course. So maybe another premise at play is that some have lost confidence in the factor, which may actually exacerbate the underperformance of value over time and perhaps would lead to at least a stable or maybe even a higher expected return from the factor going forward. But let me, let me pivot to Chris. Chris, another premise that we hear a lot is that value investors just don't get it. The economy has changed. There are some of these extremely strong secular tailwinds to some of these growth stocks, and they're just inexorable and will never dissipate. Well, value kind of represents the old economy relative to these new economy growth stocks, and in particular tech. So what do you think about that assertion? Without question, the economy is reshaping quickly. And in many instances, it's happening more quickly than some companies or industries are able to adapt to. There is a real risk of getting stuck in a, in a value trap at the company level, or in some cases, perhaps even at the industry level. But I don't think it's fair to paint such a broad brush with respect to value. In addition, definitions matter. So when I, as a fundamental guy, look at value, there's a tendency to think about it as cyclicals or those sectors that are more heavily weighted in the value indices, say energy and financials, et cetera. Whereas the way that Mike's team looks at value is more nuanced and doesn't have the same sectoral biases. And that influences how portfolios are managed and how they'll perform. It's not as dependent on the economic cycle or commodity prices or interest rates, certainly not to the same extent as a more simplistic implementation. But to be clear, you have to be careful. There are a lot of companies out there that are structurally challenged and are in industries that are in secular decline. 
And so you have to have a process to weed those out. You have to be able to identify those more systemic challenges. Whether you're a fundamental or a quantitative investor, you have to look beyond just the valuation and look at the quality of the business, its financial condition, and really try to avoid those value traps. As a fundamental investor, I certainly love a good growth story, but it's worth remembering that just because someone has a style that leans value doesn't mean that they exclusively buy stocks that are cheap on an absolute basis without considering the prospects for the company. So there's there's a lot of different issues at play here, but in the in the long term, it's not obvious to me that that value as a strategy or a style has somehow gone on a favor. To Mike's point, I think it's very much a cycle, and uh, and interestingly, I think that that we're kind of at the point where you really have to give value a second look. All right, so let's talk about what point we're at. And I was chuckling when you said fundamentals because in some ways, especially in some of the market moves we've seen recently, fundamentals don't really seem to matter that much to too many investors. But to your point about where we are in the cycle, what needs to happen for value as you define it to have more durable outperformance. And I'm glad you mentioned some of the nuances to the way we think about the value factor at Northern Trust because it's really not just taking the cheapest stocks in the market and buying them. It's overlaying that with some really some discipline around quality and some discipline around different metrics that we use to define what value means in today's market and in today's economy. So we do have quite a different approach, but really what does need to happen for value to start sustainably and predictably and really confidently outperforming growth? I'm sure there's multiple schools of thought on this, but when I look at the conditions that led to value's underperformance over the last decade, it really lines up with a period of relatively meager economic growth coming out of the financial crisis, combined with a revolution of sorts in the context of the build out of the cloud and e-commerce, et cetera. And that's certainly a difficult backdrop for value. When growth in the economy is relatively scarce, as we saw in the post-financial crisis period, investors are more willing to pay up for growth where they can find it as it's less readily available. The build-out of the cloud and e-commerce led investors into those secular stories. And because economic activity wasn't exactly robust, there was little risk in shifting away from cyclicals or traditional value. As I mentioned, you know, there's, there are different ways to think about what represents value stocks. But generally speaking, a tide that can lift all boats in the form of better economic growth will help to narrow the appeal of growth stocks on a relative basis. The other thing that we've talked about in the past is just the impact of interest rates on the subject of growth versus value. And this can get a little bit geeky, but when you think about a growth stock, more of the value of the company is in the future, as it's what that company will grow to be that investors are actually paying for. And if you discount that future value back to the present at a lower interest rate, like we've seen, that increases the present value. In other words, growth stocks are worth more when rates are low, and in theory, should be worth less just based on the math, when rates rise. Rising rates also generally mean better economic growth or signs of inflation, which are better for cyclicals or value. Higher rates isn't our base case, as you know, as we think that the secular downward forces on inflation will overwhelm these short-term upward cyclical pressures. But we do think that economic growth is going to surprise to the upside, which should be good for value. And if you come back to the your last question, again, even if we were to to think about critics of the value style over time, they would still have to admit that there are times when you want to be there. And after such a stretch of underperformance where the stock performance has frankly been much more disparate than the fundamental performance. In other words, the valuation gap has widened massively. Yet for the next couple of years, we should see better growth in terms of earnings growth for value companies than we do for growth companies as we come off of these cyclical lows. 
The setup actually looks particularly good for value if the economy remains on track as we expect. Chris, I'm really glad you mentioned the volatility because we've seen historically that stocks are much more volatile than earnings or the economy in general. But I'm glad you also mentioned the cycle because there's a little bit of dissonance right now in terms of where we are in the cycle. It certainly seems from an economic perspective, we're either at the beginning of a new cycle or re-entering a cycle interrupted. We had a steep decline in employment and in GDP, and we're coming out of that. And we have a really optimistic outlook for the rest of the year. But a lot of that is based on the temporary fiscal stimulus. And once we get past that, we expect we may be back to the old normal. And that said, when you look at the market and where we are, we have had some mixed messages. We've seen value start to outperform, which is actually exactly what you would expect at the beginning of a new cycle. And as you referenced, value stocks have much higher leverage to economic growth. So we've actually got the earnings growth outlook for value outperforming the earnings growth outlook for growth at this point in the cycle. At the same time, though, you still have this sort of bubble-like speculation in certain areas of the market. And that's the kind of behavior you tend to see late in the market cycle. So how should our listeners be thinking about that as they're considering sort of a growth versus value dynamic right now and where we are in the market cycle? And, and maybe, Chris, maybe I'll start with you here. And I made a, a pretty flippant comment earlier about fundamentals not mattering. But certainly when you look at what's going on in, in some of the particularly frothy areas, it does seem to be the case. Yeah, I mean, this has been an unusual cycle to say the least, right? Being appropriately compared much more to a, a natural disaster than a traditional cycle. And I say that because we face this exogenous shock at a time when the economy was actually in a pretty good place, right? Unemployment was exceedingly low. You had consumer balance sheets were in very good shape. Corporate balance sheets were in good shape. And there were frankly very few signs of nearly any part of the economy or the market showing significant excess. So you didn't have the the buildup and the accumulation of risk that you might normally have that either triggers or certainly exacerbates a contraction or recession. Obviously, we had a lot of that coming into the financial crisis, and that takes a lot longer to unwind on the back end during the recovery as those excesses and imbalances need to be unwound. And again, that takes time. So without those excesses coming into COVID, the economy has been able to bounce back very quickly, apart from those areas, of course, that are closely tied to the things that are disrupted by our ongoing social response to the virus. But what we saw in the early stages of the pandemic and since is what we've called an acceleration of trends that were already in place, right? The move to the cloud, e-commerce, the things we've talked about already, and in some cases, even the substitution of capital in place of labor. And these trends were in place pre-pandemic, but they really accelerated last year. And this has created a, a unique set of winners. It was those companies that were already favored by the market coming in for the secular forces deemed to be at play that really accelerated during the pandemic. And so what we've seen, at least for a time, is the market's been willing to pay almost any price for those winners. In many cases, seemingly taking the acceleration during the pandemic is the new normal, perhaps failing to appreciate the more difficult comparisons in 2021 and what they could mean optically for growth rates. And I bring all that up to say that unusual market dynamics in such an unusual environment should almost be expected, right? And it's our job to look ahead and see what's permanently changed and what hasn't. Have we really forced large parts of the economy toward obsolescence only to be replaced by highly scalable technology? Is it really fair to price some of these companies as if the accelerated run rate over the past year is the new normal? Or was there a one-time step up in, in related spend that will anniversary into slower growth? 
that the market, frankly, isn't prepared for by looking at the valuation. So to your question, I don't think that fundamentals are obsolete, but I think that the euphoria shown in some parts of the market will have to come back down to earth as, as the fundamentals in those areas are viewed in a more normal economic backdrop. Ah, euphoria. Very, very good use. Good, good word to use. And Mike, I'm going to turn to you here because I know you have this deep research background. You're focusing on compensated risk factors, and you're clearly someone who leans on research and data and who believes that valuations matter. So when you're bumping up against this kind of, in some cases, irrational euphoria that you see in certain areas of the market, how frustrating is that for you? Or do you just take it as it comes and acknowledge that it's just part of a normal market cycle? Yeah, it definitely is a normal part of the cycle. You know, what we need to realize is that value is not a free lunch. You know, it's outperformed historically through time, but that outperformance, that cycle is really predicated on periods where fundamentals do appear obsolete. The whole pretext for value is that investors are overpaying potentially for growth. There will be periods like today where it does certainly appear as though the fundamentals are obsolete. But over time, the expectation is that euphoria will ebb. We will refer, re- revert more toward fundamentals, toward rationality in, in our discounting of cash flows. And those are the periods in which value will tend to outperform. We're in a speculative phase, certainly, of the cycle. There's no question about that. But the whole premia for holding value stocks again, is predicated on experiencing those speculative phases. Now, you hear this a lot, but I'll say it again. When when you're a value investor, it's always darkest before dawn. We have a lot of the same rhetoric in the market today that we had in 1999, where we likewise were in a very deep value cycle of value and performance. The subsequent six years after that uh, really told the tale of how value can come back in a very rapid way. So I think what you just said bears repeating because I think the issue is not that growth stocks all of a sudden are bad. The issue is that investors begin to pay too high a valuation for that growth. And at a certain point, that tends to be, you know, the potential catalyst. So Chris, let me turn to you because we're really talking about an environment where we have unusually all of the stars aligned for value, right? We have relative valuations that are looking good for value over growth. We have relative earnings growth, actually, that's looking good for value over growth. And of course, we have this economic cycle that could benefit value over growth. Do you think this rising tide will raise all boats Or do you think investors might be at risk of falling into what you referenced earlier as a value trap? First and foremost, as we've talked about already, is you have to look for companies that are good companies at their core, at least if you're a longer term investor as we are. And so we're looking for companies that have some form of sustainable competitive advantage. And we really want to avoid those companies that are the the so-called value trap. And so those competitive advantages could come from either having some form of innovation or brand or or market share or some intellectual property, or they're a low-cost producer. There's something about that business that creates some type of competitive advantage. And hopefully you have more than one of those things working together. On top of that, we're trying to find companies that, again, have some exposure to some type of uh, favorable trend. Now, in the case of value stocks, they tend not to be secular 
necessarily, but they could be cyclical or they could be some internal catalyst that's unique to that company that you're trying to gain exposure to. And then, of course, most importantly, as it relates to value is what you're paying for that business, right? So you have to be very sensitive to valuation. That doesn't mean you can't pay a higher valuation for some company that has sustainable growth, but you need to do the work to assess what that business is really worth and make sure that you're paying some discount to that. Again, what you're trying to find ideally is is a, a defensible, high quality business model that is trading at some significant discount to its inherent value based on some, you know, either external market factor or some cyclical factor or something that you believe to be trending now favorably in the right direction that you can gain exposure to. Mike, let's turn to you for this final question. What do you think the best way for investors to get exposure to the value factor is without getting crushed by the inevitable periods of underperformance? I think there's two considerations. Uh, The first consideration is from an allocation perspective, and that is you really need to understand how much value exposure you have in your total portfolio. I think the biggest mistake that the investors that we see over the last couple of years have made is that they just didn't understand how much value content they had. That can exist in equities, it can exist in real estate, in your infrastructure exposure, in your commodities exposure. Uh, All of these things can and do have value content. So you need to understand how much exposure you actually have. Number two, and this sort of gets to Chris's point, when you fulfill, meaning that you're going out and seeking that value exposure, you have to be very, very cognizant of some of the other unintended bets that you're taking. As Chris mentioned, we vastly prefer a sector neutral approach to garnering value exposure. We do not like the idea of chasing value content across sectors. That immunizes a lot of not only the sector volatility, but a lot of the macroeconomic risk inherent in value portfolios. Uh, Also, to Chris's point, we prefer a higher quality orientation. We don't want to we don't want to hold those falling knives, those value stocks that are cheap because they're, they're, they're on the downtrend uh, because something materially is wrong with their business model. Uh, we prefer, the, prefer those securities that have better profitability, better cash flow, better use of the balance sheet as well. So uh, if you can do those things, it goes a long way to ameliorating some of the risk of the value factor. But again, this is uh, it's no free lunch. You know, you want to be in it for the long term. Over the long term, we remain convicted that value uh, is a source of, of compensation. Great, Mike. Thanks so much. And again, it's all about the process, developing a process that you believe in and can stick to during good times and bad. So in sum, we still believe in compensated risks, that investors will be compensated for taking equity risk, which really is the primary risk you have in your portfolio. And we believe that there is an opportunity to take more risk by leaning into factors like value. As Mike said, it's not a free lunch. There is a reason the value factor is called a risk factor. But we have confidence that you'll be compensated for taking that additional risk in the value factor, as well as in some other factors. That said, though, I think the last long period of underperformance suggests strongly that it's probably imprudent to put all of your eggs into any one factor basket, and that a diversified approach is the best approach and combining factors to give you meaningful diversified benefits and also to mitigate the potential, as Mike and I just noted, of these long periods of underperformance. And on the fundamental side, as Chris noted, perhaps it's not an either or, but more of a both and when it comes to value and growth. 
The market's pretty good at pricing assets, and the market persistently assigns a premium valuation for growth stocks, but it's doing that because there's a stronger and more predictable outlook over the long term. Now, these stocks may get too expensive over certain periods, and perhaps they're too expensive right now, but the strong secular story would suggest that you probably still want to own them in your portfolio. So I guess the bottom line is we don't think it's different this time. We believe that the recent rotation into value probably has legs. But you really want to make sure that you're taking that nuanced approach that Mike and Chris both discussed to avoid unintended and ultimately uncompensated risks. So I want to thank both Chris and Mike for joining us today. Great discussion on value and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Subscribe to Market Currents from your favorite podcast app to be automatically notified of new episodes. This audio podcast is being provided for informational and educational purposes only and is not meant to be taken as investment advice or a recommendation of any specific investment product or strategy. The information does not take your financial situation, investment objective, or risk tolerance into consideration. Listeners, including professionals, should under no circumstances rely upon this information as a substitute for their own research or for obtaining specific legal, investment, accounting, or tax advice from their own counsel.